Well, hey, everybody, good to see all of you today, you know, and uh, we're excited about this uh, series that we're in. I wanted to begin by telling you about, about uh, this little story. You know, in 1975, in a bar in a very, very small town called Bonnie Dune in Northern California, uh, this fellow named Gary Dahl was having a few drinks with his friends when the conversation turned to their pets and how difficult it is to raise pets and to have pets. And those of you who have a dog or a cat or a guinea pig or whatever it is that you might have, real, you know, know what he's talking about because it's kind of a, it's very challenging to have pets. And and I gave Gary the idea that it, would it be great if there was a perfect pet, you know, a pet that doesn't poop and pee, a, a pet that you didn't have to feed, a pet you didn't have to walk, a pet you didn't have to groom, a pet that never got sick, that pet you never had to take to the vet, and a pet that would never die. And so he came up with this idea of of a pet that would do exactly that. And so he thought the ideal pet, the perfect pet, would be a rock. And so he designed a custom cardboard box, bought a bunch of rocks for a penny apiece at Rosarito Beach uh, in Baja, California, threw in some straw, and he sold 1.5 million pet rocks for $4 each, and he became an instant millionaire. Anybody ever have one of these? Anybody bold enough to say they had a pet rock? That's good. The pet rock craze lasted for only six months, and you can guess why. It's because it was worthless. It wasn't really a pet. It was just a rock. You know, there are a lot of worthless inventions out there. In my time, this is probably number one on the list. But I think you can add a couple more of these. I'm going to throw these out there for you. You can add this peephole, worthless, absolutely worthless, peephole to see who's on the other side. Some of you still don't understand why it's worthless. It's because the glass door, anyways. Um, or how about this one? This isn't an invention, but it's a worth, these are worthless subtitles. Closed captioning, cries in Spanish. Oh, really? Is that what she's doing? Oh, really? Wow. Worthless. How about this invention right here? A goldfish walker. Seriously, who walks their goldfish, right? Who, who does that? Here's another one. The head-mounted toilet dispenser. Well, I probably could have used this a couple weeks ago when I was sneezing a lot, but this is absolutely worthless. I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, a head-mounted toilet dispenser. And what about these? Umbrella shoes. Umbrellas for your shoes. I mean, really, if you don't want your shoes to get wet, just, some, just wear galoshes, right? Or get a big umbrella like these guys did right here walking around USC. Uh, just get a big umbrella so that your shoes don't get wet. And then how about this? This is actually kind of clever but worthless, a subway plunger, the subway plunger, because you, you, you get in the subway and then right away, right away you just fall asleep, right? So you just stick that thing up against the window and you just, and yeah, you want one of those, right? It's worthless, Mark. And I mean, if you really, I mean, really, if you're really tired, just, just sleep on the guy next to you. That's the best way to do it, right? It's amazing. How about, th- this one is, um, I don't know, worthless, the walking sleeping bag. The walking sleeping bag. I don't get this one. I mean, if you want to sleep, just get a sleeping bag and go to sleep. If you want to walk around and you want to feel warm and cozy, then then get a jacket. But this is this is kind of ridiculous and it's pretty worthless. And finally, this one, you have to see this on video to get it. Take a look at this real quick. Worthless, just worthless. Isn't it so much nicer outside? An outdoor treadmill. Right, really? I mean, if you want to run inside, I get the treadmill thing, right? But if you get to run outside, just run. You don't need the treadmill. This is absolutely worthless. 
You know, there's so many worthless contraptions out there. Um, it's really ridiculous. You know, today we've come to the second half of James chapter 2. And James tells us about one more thing that you can put on that list of worthless items. And this one, I got to tell you, this one is a stunner. It's a stunner. You know, if you're joining us for the first time today, we've been going through the book of James. We've been studying through the book of James. Uh, and we've titled this series Faith in Action because if you have ever read the book of James, that's what it's all about. It's about putting your faith into action. It's about how we should apply the Word of God, not just hear the Word of God. We've got to live it out. And today we've come to this passage, and it's absolutely sobering. It's sobering because it describes what faith is like when it's not lived out. And that is, it's worthless. A worthless faith. So that's what I've titled today's message, Worthless Faith. And I just want to say here at the outset that there probably isn't anything more tragic than to have a worthless faith. Think about that, a worthless faith. See, what defines us as Christ followers is our faith. Our faith in the Lord Jesus, that he was the Son of God, that he died on a cross for our sins, he was raised from the dead, that when we put our faith in him, our sins are forgiven and we're given the gift of eternal life. And so for James to say that it is possible to have a worthless faith ought to be concerning to everyone who names the name of Christ. It ought to be concerning to every one of us. And so I hope you'll, you'll be attentive to, to, to today's message as we understand what it means to have a worthless faith, which we don't want to have. So if you brought your Bible, turn to James chapter 2. Turn to James chapter 2. Also, in your Baywatch, which is our program, there's, there's, there's some notes in there. You can take a look at that. I, I believe it's on a pink colored sheet. You can also follow all of these messages uh, and notes and everything um, on our app. If you get our South Bay Community Church app, you can go to the, the Play Store, uh, the Apple Store. You can download it. You can do it even now, and you can follow along there. All the, all the notes are all, and all the verses are listed there for you. Just a heads up, this passage today we're going to look at is just, it is fo- so full of truth. It is, there's a lot of doctrine here. And if you, if you just put on your thinking caps, and it's important doctrine, perhaps the most, it's really the bedrock of our faith. And if you, if you put on your thinking caps, I think that you're going to be blown away. You'll be blown by, by what you learn here today. So before I get started, let me open up our time in a word of prayer. Uh, <clears throat> I've still been battling this cough, and so I, hopefully I can get through this without coughing too much. And then um, I want to ask you just to, to pray for that um, synagogue that was just um, had a terrible tragedy yesterday, 11 people. A house, of, you know, that always touches me and, and it hits close to home because it was a house of worship. And um, they worship God there. And, and, and um, I just want to ask you just to, to keep those folks in, in your prayers, okay? And um, pray for us because we're a house of worship. And I'm always concerned about our own safety these days. I mean, I never thought to think that that would be an issue for us, but uh, we're always thinking about that as well. All right, so let's, let's come before the Lord and pray. Well, Father God, this morning as we gather together, we're so thankful to be able to do that. <clears throat> but our hearts and our thoughts are with those um, all the way across our country. God is a house of worship. Another house of worship was attacked yesterday, and 11 people lost their lives. And God, it's just, uh, it just heartbreaking to think that these kinds of things still happen in our country. It can happen in our country at all. And God, we ask that you would touch the, uh, these Jewish brothers and sisters of ours there, even though they don't name you, Lord Jesus, as their Savior. God, we pray that somehow through this terrible ordeal, they come to see that you are their Messiah, that somehow you would be glorified. 
that somehow, God, bring comfort and healing to them. And God, we ask that you would always watch over our congregation because these are difficult and, and kind of different days that we're living in. And I ask, God, for your protection over us every single time that we meet and, and even when we're not here. And Father, today, I ask, God, that your word would do the work. I pray that your word would be uh, proclaimed here clearly that your word would pierce our hearts, that your word would instruct us, that your word would change us, that your word would pierce our hearts. So God, help me simply to be a vessel that proclaims your word very clearly, God, in a way that we understand it, and then do work in us. So thank you, Father. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Last night when we brought the monitor out, everyone cheered thinking we are going to watch the Dodger game. Uh, so we're not going to do that until later this evening, right? <clears throat> I want to show you. This is Michael Bloomberg. Michael Bloomberg is 76 years old. He is a multi-billionaire. He's the former three-term mayor of New York City. His net worth is said to be in the neighborhood of around $50 billion, which would make him the eighth richest man <clears throat> in our country. He's also very generous. According to his foundation, he gave away more than $702 million last year. Altogether, he's given away more than $6 billion to the arts, to environmental causes, to political causes, to education, to medicine, various other, char other charities. Four years ago, as he left office as the mayor of New York City, he was interviewed by the New York Times. And toward the end of his interview, he kind of waxed uh, introspective. And here's what the Times wrote part of what, he, what they wrote about their interview. They wrote, when he sat down for the interview, it was a few days before his 50th college reunion. His mortality has started dawning on him at 72, and he admitted he was a bit taken aback by how many of his former classmates had been appearing in the in-memoriam pages of his school newsletter. Times went on, but if he senses that he may not have as much time left as he would like, he has little doubt about what would await him at a judgment day. Pointing to his work on gun safety, obesity, smoking cessation, he said with a grin, I am telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I am heading straight in. I have earned my place in heaven. It's not even close, unquote. It's Michael Bloomberg. Michael Bloomberg thinks that he's going to go to heaven based on his merits. And there are a lot of people like him. A lot of people think that they're just going to get to heaven because they've been good and they've done good things. Their theology, if you want to call it that, is that heaven is something that must be earned. You've got to work for it. It's kind of, you know, in fact, we'll put this up here. It, it works, will get you into heaven. If I were to break it down to a mathematical equation, it would be this, that your works will get you into heaven. It's kind of like these stairs right here. These stairs... And here's God at the top, and here's man trying to get up there, and we call that religion. And that's what it is. It's religion when you have to work your way to God. And if you're working your way up to God, I mean, how hard do you have to work to get to God? And that's, but that's what a lot of people believe, just like Michael Bloomberg. They believe that you get to heaven by being good. But if you've been around here for any length of time, you will know that that's not what the Bible teaches Right? The Bible says that you can't earn your way to heaven. In fact, here's what the Apostle Paul said. Take a look at the first verse in your notes. 
or in your Bible, Romans 3, verse 28, or on the screen, the Apostle Paul said, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. It's a very important verse, all right? I want you to underline justified by faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith, circle justified by faith, apart from the works of the law. <clears throat> the word justified here is the Greek word dikaio. Very important word, all right? Very important word. Dikaio, and it means to pronounce or declare someone to be righteous. All right, it's, it's so important. I want you to write this one down, okay? You can write this one down in your notes. Justify means to be to be pronounced or declared righteous, to be pronounced or declared righteous. I like Ligonier Ministries' definition of justify. They said justification is a legal declaration in which God pardons the sinner of all his sins and accepts and accounts the sinner as righteous in his sight. One more time. Justification is a legal declaration. It is a legal declaration in which God pardons the sinner of all his sins and accepts and accounts the sinner as righteous in his sight. In other words, the only way you can get to heaven is if God justifies you and declares that you, a sinner, me, a sinner, that we are forgiven and we are righteous in God's sight. That's the only way we can get to heaven. Because in heaven, there's no place for the righteous. And the only way you can get to heaven is if you are righteous and your works can't make you righteous. The only way we can be righteous is if God declares us to be righteous. It's kind of like this. Years ago, um, when I was a young adult, 20 years ago when I was a young adult, um, hey, I was younger back then, 20, 20, 20 years ago. No, but when I was a young adult, a long, long time ago, you know, a bunch of us from church decided to go to the beach. And, we, and I'll forget it. We went to Huntington Beach. We're hanging out at the beach. And, and after, um, we decided to go in the water. And I don't know if you're, you're familiar with the, the waters there, but uh, I'm not a surfer like Pastor Greg, but the water's very treacherous there, and there's a, there are a lot of riptides. And I was messing around the water, and um, I got in, a, I just went a little bit further and a little bit further, and I, I got in a little bit too deep. And before I knew it, the water was coming up to about my chin, about my neck area. And then it just started to rise, and then, I, and then the water slowly started pulling me out and pulling me out. And before I knew it, I was in over my head, and, I was, and it was pulling me out, and I was, I was getting tired. And I'm not a good swimmer. And I started, you know, flailing and I started screaming. And um, one, of the, one of the girls in our, our uh, young adult group, she came out to me very calmly, just pulled out her hand. She just pulled me right back in. And I'll never forget that story because I really thought I was going to die. I really thought I was going to drown. I mean, the water was coming in. I was taking in salt water and the whole thing. And so she did for me what I couldn't do for myself. She saved me. And I, and I've thought, I thought about this. I've never, I don't know if I've ever thanked Carol for doing that. She saved my life. She saved my life. I went to, I went to high school with her, with her husband. But she saved my life. And she did for me what I couldn't do for myself. And when you look, about, when you look at this story of justification or this, this concept of justification, that's exactly what God did for us. He did what we couldn't do for ourselves. He made us righteous. We couldn't make ourselves righteous. If Bloomberg gave away all of his money, every $50 billion penny, that he gave it all away, he still couldn't be righteous enough to get into heaven. And so God did for him what he couldn't do for himself. And how, how does God make somebody righteous? What is the basis for God 
justification. Well, he just he justifies someone strictly on the basis of what Christ did for them and not what they did for themselves. See, God doesn't justify someone based on their good deeds, which is what Michael Bloomberg and others are counting on. And that's how, that's how someone with good works they think is going to get to heaven. But God justifies somebody based on what he did for them, not what they did for themselves. Take a look at Romans 5, verse 18, the next verse. Romans 5, 18, Paul said, key verse here, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. All right, so as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, what's the one trespass that led to, all, to condemnation for all men? The one trespass was the fall. It was when sin entered into the world through Adam, when man sinned, and that led to condemnation for all. Sin led to condemnation and judgment for all because God has to punish sin. And what's the one act of righteousness that leads to justification? The one, that's right, Jesus, when Christ died on a cross for our sins. Christ paid the penalty for our sins. And it led to an act of, it led to righteousness. It led to justification and life for all men. I, I like this verse in the New Living Translation. It kind of explains it a little bit better. It's a paraphrase. Take a look at it. We'll put it side by side for you. It says, yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. You see, through Christ, because of what he did, not because of what we did, but because of what Christ did, we are justified and we are made right. We have a right relationship with God. So God justifies man on the basis of what Christ did, not on what we do. And then it all begs the question, well, then how then can I receive this justification? How, then I can, how can I be justified? How can I go to heaven? We'll take a look at Romans 3.28 again. We'll put it back up here for you. It says, for we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from the works of the law. Paul said we are justified by faith. We're justified by faith. Sinners are pronounced or declared righteous by God because of what he did at the moment they, have their, they put their faith in Jesus Christ. The moment they have faith, we are justified. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You're familiar with this. For by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. Right? It is through faith. And this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Notice that second sentence in verse 8. Justification is not of your own doing. You can't work for it. You can't, you can't earn it. It's not a result of works. It is a gift of God. Heaven is the gift that you receive when you have faith. We are saved by faith. God did for us what we, can't, we couldn't do for ourselves. And if I were to put it in what Paul just said here in mathematical equation, it would look like this. Faith will get you to heaven. Faith will get you to heaven. Not works. Works can't get you to heaven, but your faith can get you to heaven. Faith alone. By faith alone, we go to heaven. By faith alone, we are saved. By faith alone, we are justified. Now, enter James. Enter James. Here comes James. And he turns this all up on its head. At least it seems like that. Take a look at James chapter 2, verse 14. So I just gave you the introduction. James 2, 14. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And then James goes on to give us an example of what he's talking about. Verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, 
and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? James asked, what good is it if a brother or sister has a need and you don't fill it and you don't meet it? In verse 16, will you underline at the very end, what good is that? What good is that? The way this sentence is structured in the Greek, it implies the answer. And the answer is, it's no good at all. It's no good at all. And if you look at verse 14 again, jump up to 14 again, the implication is that faith without works can't get you into heaven. That faith without works can't get you into heaven, which is not what Paul said. In fact, in the very next verse, verse 17, James concludes that faith without works is dead. It's worthless. Faith without works is dead. Verse 17, take a look at it. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's worthless. James James seems to be saying that Paul's equation that faith will get you into heaven is not correct that you need, or that works won't get you, well, that faith won't get you in heaven is not uh, gonna get, gonna be working, but instead you need to have faith plus works to get into heaven. That's what he seems to be saying, that you need faith plus works to get into heaven. So, is that what he's saying? Is that what he's saying? And this, all of this appears to be bolstered by verse 24. If you take a look at verse 24 in James 2, it says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Wow, this is mind-boggling. Do you understand what's going on here? Paul said that one is justified by faith alone, faith alone, that we are saved by faith alone, that we get to heaven by faith alone, and then here comes James, and he seems to be something, saying something a little bit different, that we need faith plus works to get into heaven. And so James seems to be, appears to be contradicting Paul. How can that be? How can you have these two major towering figures in the New Testament and in the Bible contradicting one another? Could the Bible be contradicting itself? How does, how does man really get to heaven? Is it through faith only or is it faith plus works? How do we get to heaven? That's been the debate that's been raging in the church for hundreds of years. And that's why it's so important for you to understand this. Because you'll hear about it. People will talk about it. it, it whole religions are based on this. This was one of the primary issues that led to the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century and a full-blown revolt against the Catholic Church. Catholics have always believed that you need faith plus works to get into heaven. That's what they've always believed. But reformers like Martin Luther, then they came along, John Calvin, they came along, and they said, oh, no, no, that's not correct. And so they just started a revolt against the Catholic Church called the Protestant Reformation. It was an attempt to reform the Catholic Church and, the, and what, they were, what they believed. And so to counter the Protestant revolt, the Protestant Reformation, the Catholic Church convened the Council of Trent in the year 1545, December 1545 in the year of Trent, in the city of Trento in northern Italy. It looked like this. They got about 40 Catholic bishops together. And they met over an 18-year period starting in 1545. And they began to decipher what the Protestant Reformation was saying. And they clarified what the Catholic Church believed. And over that 18-year period, they issued condemnations of what they said were heresies of the Protestant Reformation movement, as well as clarifications and statements of the teachings of the the Catholic Church. 
I want to just show you two of the edicts that they issued during that 18-year period. The first I want to show you is Canon 9, which the Council of Trent issued. Canon 9 countered Luther's view that salvation was by faith alone. Faith alone. Here's what Canon 9 says. If anyone shall say that by faith alone the impious is justified, the impious would refer to believers. If anyone shall say this, that by faith alone the impious is justified, so as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order unto the obtaining of the grace. Nothing else is required, just faith alone, unto the obtaining of the grace of justification that it is not in any respect necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will. Let him be anathema. Let him be anathema. In other words, the Council of Trent said, whoever says, whoever says that you are justified by faith alone, you, Martin Luther and John Calvin, we're talking about you. Whoever says that, let him be anathema. And anathema means to be cursed. Let him be accursed. Let him be cursed. And the council so essentially declared a curse upon anyone who believed that the only way you're saved is by faith. And when someone was found to be an anathema, be anathema in the Catholic Church, they were excommunicated from the church. Here's another one regarding the sacraments. The sacraments. The council, sacraments are very important in the Catholic Church. Regarding the sacraments, the Council of Church declared in Canon 4, take a look at this, if anyone shall say that the sacraments of the new law are not necessary, sacraments are not necessary unto salvation, but superfluous, and that without them and without the desire thereof men, through faith alone, obtain of, grace, obtain of God the grace of justification, though all the sacraments be not necessary for every individual, let him be anathema. The key here, if anyone shall say that the sacraments of the new law are not necessary unto salvation, let him be accursed. See, the Catholic Church taught that the sacraments, and they still teach this today, that the sacraments like baptism and confirmation, that would be taking Holy Communion, penance, that would be absolution of your sins, marriage, healing of the sick, and the Eucharist are all necessary for salvation. That's what they teach. They still teach that, that it's necessary for salvation. And they refer to this as cooperating with God's grace. A Catholic website called Catholicism.org explained the, their position this way. Man has the ability and obligation to cooperate with God's grace. The obligation and ability to, co-op, uh, to uh, cooperate with God's grace in securing his own salvation. I highlighted that. In securing his own salvation. In the practical order, this means that he must, that was, italics was added by them, he must do good and avoid evil in order to be saved. He's not merely a passive recipient of God's grace. Catholicism.org. So Catholics teach that you must cooperate with God's grace by participating in the sacraments. You've got to do all these things to secure your salvation. In other words, you have to work for it. Faith plus works will get you to heaven. You have to work for it. In the catechism of the Catholic Church, the catechism is the compendium of, of what the church believes, all their doctrine, all their teachings. It says this about good works in paragraph 1821. We can therefore hope in the glory of heaven promised by God to those who love him and do his will. <clears throat> in every circumstance, each one of us should hope with the grace of God to persevere, <coughs> excuse me, to persevere to the end 
And, and I highlighted this, to obtain the joy of heaven as God's eternal reward for the good works accomplished with the grace of Christ. To obtain, key, to obtain the joy of heaven as God's eternal reward for good works. Heaven, the catechism of the Catholic Church clearly says that heaven is the eternal reward for good works. Faith plus works will get you into heaven. That's what they're saying. And I think Tim Staples, when writing for another Catholic website called catholic.com, summed it up best when he wrote, in the final analysis, I believe the text that is about as plain as any text could be concerning works and justification is James 2.24. That is, it is about as plain as can be in telling us both that, and I highlighted this, telling us that faith alone is insufficient for our justification, that works are indeed necessary. Are we justified by faith? Certainly. By faith alone? No way. It's both faith and works according to Scripture, and those are his italics, right? Position of the Catholic Church has been very straightforward. You need faith plus works to get to heaven. You need faith plus whatever you need to do to earn your salvation. They bring works right into it. And so the $64,000 question is, was this James's position? Is this what he was saying? That you need faith plus works to get to heaven? Well, if you continue reading on in James chapter 2, he gives us two examples of justification by works. Take a look at verse 21. This is so good. Kind of blow your mind. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? There it is. Underline justified by works. Wasn't he justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith, verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Again, verse 21, underline justified by works. Now to refresh your memory, because I know you forget, right, to be justified means to, de- to be declared or pronounced righteous. Remember that? Take a look at that definition again. It is to be declared or pronounced righteous. All right, verse 21, in verse 21, James said that Abraham was declared righteous, how? By his works. What were his works? Well, verse 21 tells us he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. Remember that story? Genesis chapter 22, it's found in the Old Testament. Genesis 22, God instructed Abraham to take his one and only son, Isaac, to the land of Moriah, up to the mountain, and to offer him up as a burnt offering, as a sacrifice. That meant Abraham had to take his son, he had to tie him up, lay him on a pile of wood, kill him, and then set the wood pile on fire with his son on it. And if you read the story in Genesis chapter 22, that's exactly what Abraham did. That's exactly what he did. He took Isaac up to the mountain, bound him, laid him on a wood pile, and just as he was about to slay him with a knife, God intervened. God stopped him. Genesis 22, verse 11 and 12. Put it up here for you. says, But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham said, Here I am. And he... And the angel of the Lord said, do not lay your hand on the boy. 
or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. See, God never intended for Abraham to kill his son or to sacrifice his son. God was simply testing him to see if he would be willing to obey him, if he was willing to obey God. And thus, James 2.21 says that Abraham was justified by his works when he offered up his son Isaac. The truth is, Isaac wasn't justified by his works at all. He wasn't justified by his works at all. He wasn't declared righteous because he was willing to offer up his son Isaac. Instead, his works showed that he was already justified. His works showed that he was already justified. What Abraham did, again, with Isaac, didn't justify him. Instead, it showed that he was already justified. How do I know that? Because in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, seven chapters earlier, it tells us that Abraham had already been justified by faith. Take a look at Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And it says, And he believed the Lord, Abraham believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. He believed the Lord, and the Lord counted, counted to him his faith as righteousness. It's confirmed for us in James chapter 2, verse 23, <coughs> which says that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, he was justified. And he was justified not by his works. He was justified by faith. God did for him what he couldn't do for himself. He believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. James' second example of justification by works is found in verse 25. Take a look at verse 25. It says, And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works. We underline justified by works. <clears throat> How? When she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. If you're not familiar with this story, Rahab was a prostitute. And she was also an, an innkeeper in, in, in the city of Jericho. Jericho was in the land of Canaan. The land of Canaan was the promised land that God said he was going to give to the people, to the, to the Jews, to the people of Israel. He said, I'm going to give you this land. And they wandered in the desert for 40 years, remember, looking for the land. There's the promised land. They finally find the promised land. It's the land of Canaan, right there in the, in, in the land of Canaan, in the city of Jericho. And in the city of Jericho is an inn, and inside that inn is a prostitute named Rahab. In preparation for entering into the land, and when this story was written, the Jews had still not entered into the promised land. But when, in preparation for entering into the promised land, Joshua, the captain, said, hey, I'm going to send in two spies. Let's send in two spies to check out the land. Let's just kind of do some reconnaissance work. Let's kind of get the lay of the land. And when the two spies got there, they went straight to Rahab. Take a look at Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. And it says, and Joshua, the son of Nun, he was the son of a nun, but Nun was the name of his, one of his parents. I'm not sure if it was the mom or the dad. Probably the dad, the son of Nun, sent two spies. And Joshua sent two spies. Two men secretly from Shittim as spies saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. So they went, two spies went to Jericho, they went, and they went straight to Rahab. <clears throat> and when the king of Jericho heard the two spies were at Rahab's place, he sent his soldiers in to arrest them. Hey, go get those two guys, bring them back here. But Rahab, before they could arrest him, Rahab hid them. She hid them 
And then she told the soldiers when they showed up to look for the two spies, she said to them, they went that away. And so she set them off on a wild goose chase. And thus James said that, that Rahab was justified by her works. Truth is, she was already justified by faith because she believed in God long before the soldiers ever got there. Take a look at Joshua chapter 2, starting in verse 8. It says, before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof. So she hid them in the roof. And verse 9 says, and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that, you fear, that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the, the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites and were beyond, who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She was a woman of God. She had this incredible faith in God. She believed what God did when he parted the Red Sea. She believed what God did in protecting them. She, and her, her heart melted. Like, wow, God, you are God. And it was because of her faith that she was justified. She wasn't justified by her works. She was justified by her faith. God did for her what she couldn't do for herself, a prostitute. God made her righteous because of her faith. And all this begs the question, and this is the important one. Why then would James say that Abraham and Rahab were justified by works if, in fact, they were justified by faith? Why would he say that? Well, what I didn't tell you earlier is that when I gave you the definition for the word justify in the Greek, I didn't tell you that there are two definitions for the word. There are two definitions for the word. Remember the word justify is the Greek word dikaio, and it means to be pronounced or declared righteous. There's a second definition. The second definition, definition of dikaio is this. It is to show to be righteous. To show to be righteous. So you can write that one down. To justify also means to show to be righteous. And, and I want to show it to you. <coughs> Here it is on Bible Hub. Bible Hub is one of my favorite uh, websites to go to when I want to know the Greek and the Hebrew. Uh, and I want to understand it. But let's, there's a close-up shot. Sherry, you can show that one. The close-up shot here on the, on the far left, strong concordance. If you go down, original word, dikaio, part of speech is a verb. Transliteration, dikaio, that's how it's spelled. Definition, to show to be righteous. Other definition, to be declared righteous. That's the first definition I gave you. To declare righteous, the definition I just gave you now, to show to be righteous. To show to be righteous. The difference between the two definitions is very subtle, but it's very significant. In James chapter 2, verse 21 and 25, the word justify here, with, regard, with regards to Abraham's works and Rahab's works, it is the word Dikaio means to show to be righteous. And that's exactly what happened. Abraham's actions showed him to be righteous. Rahab's actions showed her to be righteous. It didn't declare her righteous. Abraham wasn't declared righteous because of what he did. It showed them to be righteous. Their actions showed them to be righteous. And so when James said that a person is justified by works, he didn't mean that their works saved them. He just meant that their works showed that they were righteous. It showed that they were righteous. 
So which of these is correct? Is it Bloomberg's idea, works will get you into heaven? Is that correct? Absolutely not. You can't work your way into heaven. That's clear, so scratch that one off. Is it faith will get you into heaven? Faith alone. We are saved by faith alone. We are justified by faith alone. We get to heaven by faith alone. Is that correct? Absolutely that's correct. That's absolutely true. But there's something about this one that's unresolved. And we'll come back to that in just a second. What about the Catholic Church's view? Faith plus works will get you into heaven. Is that true? Faith plus works will get you into heaven? No. You, you can't just throw works in there and say you need faith and then throw in some works and say you've got to do these two. You've got to do these two if you want to go to heaven. It's not true. So you can scratch that one off as well. Put a line through that one as well. The only equation here that rings true is that faith will get you into heaven. It's that faith will get you into heaven. That's, that's the only one. But then that still leaves us with James chapter 2, verse 14 and 17. If you want to take a look at that again, put it up here for you. We still have to resolve this, right? James, again, let me read it for you. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? What good is it? Can that faith save him? In verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. What is he saying? If James didn't mean by this that we are saved by a combination of faith plus works, as, as Catholics believe, then, then what did he mean? What did he mean by this? Well, clearly, I think James is suggesting that there, clearly suggesting that there must be an element of works. There must be an element of works that goes along with our faith. I mean, that's, that's pretty clear. That's what he's saying. But let me explain to you this way what he's getting at. Once upon a time, there's a police officer pulled over a driver. The officer walked up to the driver, up, up, walked up to his window and asked to see his driver's license and car registration. And I said, ever that ever happened to you? Oh, I get a lump in my throat and my heart starts to beat really fast and it's the worst feeling in the world, right? Red lights. Can you turn the red lights off, please? Um, can I see your driver's license and car registration, please? And your insurance, verification of insurance. And the man said to him, what did I do, officer? I wasn't speeding and I didn't go through a red light. And the officer said to him, that's right, I know you didn't do either of those things. He said, well, what did I do? And the police officer says, well, I saw you wave your finger at that little old lady as you swerved around her. She was in the left hand, and you swerved around her wildly. And I saw your face turn red, and as you shouted angrily at the driver, that SUV who cut you off, I saw that. And he says, and I saw you pound your steering wheel when that, tra when that traffic all of a sudden just came to a stop right there on Western Avenue. I saw that. And the driver said to the officer, was that a crime officer? He said, no, that's not a crime. He says, but then when I saw the Jesus loves you and so do I bumper sticker on your car, I thought for sure this car was stolen. <laughs> you see, if you have a bumper sticker on your car that proclaims the world that you love Jesus, but you don't drive like it, well, James said, that kind of faith is dead. That kind of faith is dead. That kind of faith is worthless. Why? Because your actions are <clears throat> more than your works. Your actions more than, more than, I'm sorry, more than your words, your actions more than your words prove who you are. Your actions more than your words prove who you are. Oh, I'm a Christian. Well, let's see it. Live it out. Verse 26, the last verse in James chapter 2 here. 
It says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Underline faith apart from works is dead. James said, said that in order for faith to be genuine, in order for it to be proven genuine, it must have good works. It is proven by good works. It is proven by good deeds. You see, how you live, how we live, proves who we are. It validates what we believe. How we live validates what we believe. And according to James, this is the only kind of faith that will get you into heaven. It is this. Write this one down. Faith, it is faith accompanied by works. That's the only kind of faith that will get you into heaven. Faith that is accompanied by works. Only kind of faith that will get you into heaven. And that was the point of James' message. That was the point of this chapter, the last half of this chapter, that you've got to live out your faith. You've got to live out your faith. So the question I'd have for you is this. Do the people who know you best, the people you live with, the people you work with, do the people you go to school with, do the people you hang out with at the gym or anywhere else, do they know you're a Christian not only because of what you say, but because of how you live? Or would they be shocked to learn that you even go to church? And would they say, when they found that you did, would they say that you're a hypocrite because you say one thing and do another? <clears throat> if that's you, then James would say, your faith is worthless. Your faith is worthless. And this is about as bad as it gets for someone who claims to be a Christian. That he says one thing and does another. You see, if you're a true Christ follower then there must be evidence of your faith. You can't say that I have faith, I'm a Christ follower, and get plastered every weekend. It, it, that's just inconsistent with who you are. You can't say <clears throat> you're a Christ follower and go out and cuss up a storm. And you can't drive like a maniac. You can't say you're a Christ follower and gossip and gossip and gossip and stab people in the back. You can't say that you're a Christian and sleep around with everyone. You can't say that you're a Christian and lie, cheat, and steal and hate like the next guy. And I realize none of us is perfect. And I mess up all the time. But as a general rule, as a general lifestyle, how we live ought to match who we say we are. And so, if you're a true Christ follower, there must be evidence, right? There must be evidence of your faith. What would that evidence be? Well, here's what Jesus said. John 15, verse 8. Three quick verses for you. Jesus said, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. <clears throat> so prove to be my disciples. Underline, bear much fruit. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 16, 17, You will recognize them by their fruits. Underline, recognize them by their fruits. You will know that someone is a believer, you will recognize them by their fruits. <clears throat> Are grapes gathered from thorn uh, bushes or figs from thistles? 
So every healthy tree bears good fruit, and the diseased, the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Right? If you're a Christian, you're going to see them by their good fruits. And then finally, Paul said in Colossians 1.10, <clears throat> so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. The evidence that someone is a Christ follower, a genuine Christ follower, is spiritual fruit. And we talked about that recently. Remember that? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. That's just the beginning. So the question is, are you, are you walking the walk or just talking the talk? Are you serving Christ? That's another one. Are you serving Christ? Everyone. If you, if you name the name of Christ, you ought to find everyone ought to be serving Christ. Don't serve the church. Serve Christ. Because he is our head. Right? When someone is in need, do you go out of your way to help them? Do you go out of your way to pray for them? Or is your faith worthless? Let me tell you something, church. We don't want, we, we can't have our faith be worthless. Our, our, our faith must not be worthless. Do you know who has a worthless faith? Let me show you. Last verse, verse 19. <clears throat> James wrote, you believe that God is one? You do well. Even the, even the demons believe and shudder. See, demons have a worthless faith. Faith is worthless. They believe in God. Demons were there when, when God created the, the world. They, they have seen his power. They were around when Jesus was born. In fact, they, they saw what he did to evil spirits. They witnessed his resurrection. They know God better than we do. They saw, they've seen God in action more than we've seen him in action. And they know that God is mighty and they know that he is powerful. And that's why they shudder. At the thought of God, their faith is worthless, and they will be doomed forever. Beloved, let's not have a worthless faith. Get serious about God. Get serious with God. Don't be a Christian in name only. From this day forward, resolve, I will not be a Christian in name only. I will do everything I can to bear fruit. I will serve my Lord I will get involved. I will, I will stop straddling the fence. I will take a stand. I take a stand for God. I will start walking with it. I will turn away from sin. That was his message. That was James's message. And don't forget, you can't get to heaven by doing good. If you're trying to do, get to heaven by doing good, stop trying. You're never going to get there. And you, you can't get to heaven by, by a combination of faith and good works. The only way you can get to heaven is by faith, by having faith. But to prove that your faith is genuine, it's got to be accompanied by good works. God did for us what we can't do for ourselves. Now we just have to live it. Let's close our time in prayer.
And as you close your eyes and bow your heads for just a moment, I want to give this time to you. This is your time. And give you an opportunity to just say to God whatever you need to say to Him. Maybe you've been trying to get to heaven on your own merits. Maybe you've been living a life of hypocrisy. You say one thing and do another. Whatever it is that you need to say to him, maybe you need to confess some of this to him. Why don't you do that right now? And, and everybody in this room, they, they know themselves better than anybody else in this room. And God, every one of us, <clears throat> without exception, every one of us can say that there are things in us that are so ugly and so evil and so undesirable that we can't imagine anybody would love us. But God, you loved us. And by grace, you saved us. By grace, you justified us and you declared us because of what Christ did. You declared us to be righteous. That just blows me away. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. And not only that, you gave us the ability, the gift, the wherewithal. I don't know. I don't know what it, the ability to believe to have faith so we can have this gift. So thank you, God. There is no one like you. We love you so much, Lord. Father will, you, Father, will you help us now to do everything in our power to live for you, to do good works, to show that we are righteous, right? to demonstrate that we are your children whatever that looks like for us, God. From this day forward, help us to be all in. So thank you, Father. We love you so much. In Jesus' name.